0: This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. In season two, episode 11, I recently had the chance to sit down in person with the head women's coach at Penn State University, Erica Dombach. And Erica is a national championship winning collegiate coach on the women's side. I like to, when I have the opportunity, to sit down with coaches in person. It really gives me a sense of who they are, what they're about, their body language, how they respond to questions that I might have, and engage with me as the host of this show. So I recently had the opportunity to go to State College and sit down with Erica in person. And I arrive at Rec Hall, which where her office is located. And Rec Hall, if you're not familiar, is one of the more historic buildings on Penn Penn State's campus. Uh, It is one of those places where uh, a lot of their sporting activity either has happened in the past or is still currently happening. So I walk into Erica's office, uh, not sure what to expect and a little bit nervous uh, from my end. And I'm greeted by a national championship trophy, a national runner-up trophy, and a number of Big Ten title trophies as well. Quite impressive. And in the picture that's actually uh, used as the cover art for this uh, particular podcast, uh, she and I had a chance to take a photo in front of uh, some of that hardware. So pretty neat to see that in person. So Erica sat down, and she and I covered a lot of ground in an hour. We talked about her youth playing career. We talked about her collegiate experience of William & Mary. We talked about how she got into coaching and worked her way up the college ranks and working at a number of different programs, who has influenced her as a college coach. We also talk about her time with the U.S. national team. And she shares what that experience was like in winning a, a gold medal at the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Erica has had tremendous success during her time at Penn State University in running the women's program. She has compiled 202 wins. She has also won the only national championship in women's soccer in school history. She also has a national runner-up, to her credit. A number of Big Ten regular season and postseason titles, she's been named the National Coach of the Year in 2012 among other honors and players that she's coached to go on and play professionally. It was a real honor to sit down with Erica, and I think one thing you'll definitely pick up in this podcast is her passion for the game of football slash soccer. She absolutely radiates that uh, throughout this conversation. I hope you enjoy episode 11 of season two, my conversation with the head women's coach at Penn State University, Erica Dombach. Well, first, thank you for your time. Uh, I know you're busy and have a lot going on. Um, Tell me a little bit about your backstory.
1: Sure. So um, I obviously grew up playing the game and... Had a father that coached me as a youth player, as many of us did. It was typically our fathers, not our mothers, right? Because uh, that's how it was in that day. Um, and my brother was a big soccer player as well. He went on to play at Drexel University and um, and got got really excited. Was a three-sport athlete. We owned a summer camp growing up, so played actually played every sport. And even to this day, I'm a big proponent of, of players continuing other sports and what mm-hmm. it does. I'm sure that's a completely different podcast. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, went um, grew up in the Philadelphia area, and then went trying to decide um, on a on a university. Looked at a couple different schools, and the College of William and Mary. The head coach down there was a guy by the name of John Daly, and John ran his his program. I I had worked and played underneath him um, in the regional team program, and. I just really liked the way about him. I liked the way that he impacted his players. As soon as you went down there, you could tell the family feel of the place, and Mm -hmm. that's what struck me right away. I also believe we could win a national championship. That was pre-Penn State. That was pre-some of these big schools that had... Uh, dumped all sorts of monies in the mid nineties, so mid majors like Wayman Mary could compete for national champions, championships. In fact, um, twice in my career, we went to the elite eight and we had some success there. Um, and at that time, you wanted to be the school that beat Carolina, right? You didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to join them. I wanted to beat them. So, um, so that that was my playing career um, experience. Four wonderful years at Wima Mary, and enjoyed every minute of it. It was right right pick for me at the time. And then, right out of college, I had an opportunity to either go and play in Japan or I had already been admitted into grad school at Bucknell University. Mm-hmm. And I said to my college roommates, um, if I'm here tomorrow morning when you wake up, I'm going to Bucknell. If I, I've gone to catch a plane to go to Japan, we had a teammate playing over there. And I remember I remember that day vividly still thinking, ah, what should I do? And I'm a little bit conservative by nature. The idea of going to Japan was a little bit daunting as an 18 or 21-year-old at the time. Imagine, yeah. So I went to grad school at Bucknell, and the coaching piece, kind of the rest is history. It went from there. I can, I can go through that piece, but that's where my coaching really began in terms of the college scene. Mm-hmm. I had grown up coaching for Eastern Pennsylvania Youth Soccer Association every week of the summer, all through college. That's what helped me pay the bills. And mm-hmm. um, and so a woman by the name of Charlotte Moran, who was really instrumental in, in Eastern Pennsylvania, took care of me, you know, took me under a wing and got me involved in the college, in in coaching in general. And then my assistant coach in college, one by the name of Sue Vodica, my freshman, after my freshman season, she said to me, you should take a coaching course. You know, I'm 18 and here's my assistant coach saying, hey, I, th- I think you might be able to coach. And so there I was, I went and took my C license hmm. in East Stroudsburg uh, over seven days after my freshman fall, or after my freshman season. And I think back to some of those moments now and how much it shaped me and impacted me of just an assistant coach coming over to me and saying, hey, I think you should coach. There's a coaching course up by your home. Why don't you check it out? And I did, and um, just so many little moments that impacted my course from, from there. It just, uh, I think about that, those things often.
0: I always like to ask uh, coaches that are, you know, at a high level like yourself, that, um, what were you like as a player uh, in your playing days?
1: i was uh i was the organizer i was the one that just similar to i was a center back so similar to a goalkeeper if i didn't have to do anything i was doing my job um, i definitely had the big voice and a lot of pointing and a lot of directing and telling other people what to do so i would say very similar to how i coach was how i played um, i was just i was not the most athletic kid out there but i was i was smarter than most and was able to read the game and Um, very, very similar to to the way I coach right now.
0: Mm -hmm. I I like what you said that your dad was uh, your youth soccer coach. And um, so I've told this story before for folks who listen to the show that um, I had a big gap between my playing days and coaching days. And thank God that my son was born um, because that's what got me back into coaching. And uh, now being the parent of three kids that, um, you know, it's a juggling act most days. Uh, And I'm curious what that was like with your dad. Um, I can tell it had a big influence on you, just how you lit up when you talked about it, but tell me more about that.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I I do light up when I talk about both my folks. Um, but my dad's impact on my sports life. Um, to your point, I've got two kids now and the juggling act and recognizing what a juggling act it is. And here's a, here's a guy that was in sales. It's in my recollection, he probably traveled four to five days a week around mm. the Eastern seaboard. Um, that His sales position in Siemens was the name of his. He was an electrical engineer out of Penn State. So he um, he was the vice president of sales. And, and all I know is that he was always traveling, but all I know is that he never missed a game. And I don't know how those two go hand in hand. I've actually asked him recently how he was able to... Uh, I, I, I never remember a game that he wasn't up in the stands, but I also remember... Um, always being on the phone with him because he was somewhere else so it would he he must have organized all of those around my competition schedule you know and mm-hmm. and my brother and sister were older and my sister was involved in sports so he was able to kind of focus his time but the the um he has an office down in Richmond Virginia and they they kind of laugh when I graduated a bunch of them came to my last college game because they were so happy to see the boss no longer he spent four years at the Richmond office more than more than he ever had and so they were pumped when when uh, the boss wasn't around anymore but um, just talk about he's the one that has really shown me what priorities in life you know what's important as a kid I I always felt like he was there but I also know that he was traveling all the time I still have Mm -hmm. no idea how he how he pulled it off but um, that's been hugely impactful on me as I've started my family and have two young kids.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of uh, you mentioned the the folks in your career, you know that assistant coach maybe pulling you aside and saying, you know, hey, Erica, maybe you should think about a C license or there's a coaching course going on locally. You know, maybe think about that. Uh, I am fascinated by um, so I'm very fortunate to have an absolutely fantastic coaching mentor. The fact that um, he gives it to me straight, but he gives it to me in a very big brother sort of way, you know, and it has transformed how I coach. It's it's got me to think about things that I never, you know, my blind spots, I guess is what I would call them. And talk a little bit about that mentorship piece that you had. So kind of bridging that gap from when you finished at William & Mary to how you got into coaching and maybe some of the different schools you've coached at of having that person that can you know like i said sometimes give it to you straight put their arm around you and say like no erica you you are a good coach you know believe in yourself uh or you know have you ever thought about you know a coaching course or you know if you really want to get to this level you're going to need x y and z and um i guess i'm curious what that was like for you uh, throughout your career
1: so i break it down to kind of four different areas i think as I define my own coaching philosophy and, and kind of look at the way that I run this program, I look at the major pieces of my life and the coaching, the mentors that I've had, and I, I can feel the pieces that I've taken from each of those. So starting with John Daly at William Mary, like I said, ran it like a family, and it, it, it the wins and losses, you know, all of that happened. But at the same time, we knew how much he cared. We always knew how much he cared. And, and, you know, and it was at times detrimental because he couldn't get off the bus if we lost a game because he was steaming and he couldn't deal with those emotions. And I remember as a player, just thinking, Hey, get off the bus and let's hang out with the parents, you know? And, and so that, but his passion always came through and his love for us always came through. And to this day, he's, you know, he's a peer, he's a friend, he's a father figure. Um, You know, we consider both Ann and I consider him to be, you know, one of the most important people in our lives, and so he helped us to understand that you can run the, a program at the highest level while still creating this family environment. Understanding that a family is as dysfunctional as anybody and, and as any organization, but that this dysfunction can be done with love and and helping each other grow. So that's the kind of that's a piece I took out of Wayman Mary, and then pretty early in my career. Um, after my time at Dartmouth, I went down to Florida State and worked with Mark Accorian down at Florida State. And where I saw kind of what I take from Mark is ability to trust and delegate the people that you surround yourself with. So hire people that are um, that you trust and then empower them. And I just remember sitting at tables like this. For hours upon hours, um, Mick Statham, who's a Lafayette coach, was on that staff as well. It was only that particular stint with Mark was only 18 months of my life. But the amount of time that we <clears throat> that we spent discussing things, and I thought one of his real gifts was in those discussions that I always felt like I had come to the conclusion in my particular area. It, it was defending at the time. But looking back, I realized that it was always his decision. And he made me feel like it was mine, you know, and it's just a wonderful lesson in leadership of, I felt so much buy-in because I really felt like he trusted me and gave me the ability to do the things I wanted to do. But in retrospect, I realized he orchestrated all of it and we, and we just, we just ran our separate areas. So I just thought he was masterful as far as a tactician and, Mm -hmm. and, and managing people. People want to work with him and, and for him, because I do feel like, I think that his staff feels like they're with him, you know, that they're peers. So um, that was the piece. During that time, I also had an opportunity to work um, as the head coach of the U-17 national team. So when I was at Florida State, I was also the head coach of the US U-17 national team. And that was kind of why I made that that jump, um, because i had already been a head coach at Dartmouth for a couple of years. And I had a really interesting, um, I guess, maybe three-year stint with the U-17s. They come to me and said, "Listen, you're going to have seven trips a year, and they're going to be range anywhere between seven to ten game, t- t- seven to ten days. You can you can bring a assistant coach and a goalkeeper coach uh, into these camps." And I said, "Well, does that person need to be the same person throughout?" And they said, "No, nah, you bring in whoever I want." And I was, um, you know, I was in my twenties at the time. Uh, I guess probably my my late twenties. And uh, I just started picking up the phone and calling people in the game that I mm-hmm. didn't know but respected. And so, I picked up the phone and I called, I called Jerry Smith and I called Tony DeChico and I called Chris, Chris Petroselli and and Leslie Gallimore and just the names that have been around that that have a particular style. And I'd call them and they'd say, um, I'd say, "Can you come in with us for ten days?" And down to the down to the person. They said yes, and they said to me, you know, nobody asks us anymore. You know, Jerry Smith or Leslie Gallimore, nobody mm. asks us anymore. Janet Rayfield, I would love to come in. What do you want me to teach? How, how do you want me to help you? I said, no, actually, I want you to teach these 17s your style. Jerry's got a very specific 433. Janet's got a different one. Anson's got a different one. Tony. Mm-hmm. I said, actually, I want you to come in. You are the expert in the way that you coach your system. I want you to bring it in. And for these U17 players, I want you to play that style for, for those 10 days. And I gave myself the best coaching <laughs> um, professional development opportunity that I can now as intimidating as can be. I, I've never been more uncomfortable in my life. I, I specifically remember the conversation with Jerry Smith and we got on the phone and and, I'll, and I remember sitting in my Florida State office and he had sent me an email saying, hey, what do you want to cover in this? in this camp and I had typed out all the things that I wanted to cover and I started I started reading my list I think back to this time it still makes me laugh I start reading off my list of things that I want to cover and I got about halfway through my list and he goes how long is this camp Mm -hmm. and I, I must have had 50 different topics that were all over the map, you know, and, and he just is kind of, he's like, all right, well, I think we could probably hit three of them in seven days, but mm-hmm. the other 25 we'll have to hold <laughs> off on. Um, but it was just, uh, you know, this, the little pieces that I took from each of those coaches during that time, I take, keep really copious notes and just, I, I have notebooks on on all <laughs> of it. And uh, it's just a really cool reflection I was so uncomfortable. And I guess that shows a level of confidence in yourself that you're willing to, to extend and reach out and bring those people in. But I just remember those days I would go into those camps more nervous than, than anything I've ever done. And I'm the head coach of of that group. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was hugely beneficial to those players. So, um, so that was that piece, um, And then I think one of my mentors, kind of the final piece, one of my mentors is my associate head coach, Ann Cook. And one of the reasons that things have always worked really well for us has been um, her commitment to her work-life balance. And that was something that I've never, that I never had in my 20s and 30s. Mm. um, That was something that, to be honest wasn't important to me I wanted to work I loved it I was I was in love with coaching I loved the ability to impact others through using sport as a vehicle I loved the way that they responded and the impact that you felt and I was addicted to it I, I just remember having so much fun with it through those years and um, I also remember waking up at thirty and going, "Holy smokes, where did where did my twenties go?" Um, and you know, I remember at Dartmouth having hundred hour work weeks at, at Harvard easily, you know, and uh, but but not really having any regrets. But at the same time, seeing all my friends get married and start their families. But as I was having more success, and then got pulled into the U.S. organization and got pulled up to the full team and started working with Pia. Um, you know, it was hard to slow down at that point. It, it was mm-hmm. even more contagious and more excitement. And, and we'll talk, I'm sure we'll have a minute to talk about P at some point because um, that's a that's a really exciting time in my life as well. But um, it wasn't until about 38 where life really kind of hit me. And I think through that, during that time was where Anne was really instrumental of we can have both here you know you can you can slow down a little bit we have to surround ourselves with people like Tim and Kara and the staff that I've been able fortunate enough to bring in but we can do this if you allow your staff to do some of the things that you preach
0: so I can tell that uh, relationships and people are I guess are two things that are, they seem very important to you uh, as a coach and Um, Erica, I really loved what you said about the being uncomfortable part, Um, and like you said, you were the head coach of the U-17s at the time, and um, it actually reminds me of an experience that I had recently. So I'm going through some coaching education, and the way they have them structured now, they're sort of in, you know, there's part one and part two, right? Right. So I've completed part one, I'm sort of in the developmental phase in my home environment, I'm going to go back and do part two here uh, in June. and. the the instructor a former division one coach uh, on the women's side now not doing that but sort of in coaching education um that was the first thing he said to all of us so there's 16 of us in a room um up near cleveland and uh you know i thought about that because you know anytime you go into a new environment you're a little bit intimidated right and you know we we come with sort of a level of knowledge in our experiences in the game but the more i do this the more i realize what i don't know and you know, surrounding yourself with people that may be my blind spots and uh, have a great relationship with my coaching partner at the, at the club level now. I'm curious for you when you do self-reflection about recognizing maybe a weakness, you know, in your coaching sort of tool belt, um, or maybe a maybe weakness isn't the right word, but to say, hey, this might be a blind spot for me. I need to bring someone in who's really good at, you know, insert the name of the phrase. Um, have you been able to do that and sort of, was it trial and error or was it, you know, through experiences or or something along those lines?
1: I, I, I certainly don't have any, any challenge recognizing weaknesses in my coaching abilities. Um, you know, I think that that's, again, that's just the, the obvious and we all have them and, and being able to recognize. I think that's another place where Ann has been so instrumental in the two of us being able to look each other in the eyes. I think one of the challenges that I faced, to be frank, when I got here in 07 was the idea of having this family environment, but also competing for a national championship. And in my heart of hearts, I felt that we could do both. But one of the areas that I know for me as a coach is that, um, I, I, I like to bring players along. I like to support them. It, in my opinion, philosophically, it, it you know, my philosophy is to help them to be the best versions of themselves. and in order to do that, I've got to support them in every way I possibly can. But that includes tough love. And I think that's the area for me where I've needed to bring different people in to help with that piece, to to continue to push me, to make sure that, well, it's not a standard issue, but it's more of a, now it's time to give them a kick in the butt because I want to bring them, I really want to put my arm around them. I really want to help them. And um, the irony of it is that I grew up in a household where I was always getting a kick in the butt, you know? And, and I think that worked out pretty well for same, for me. Same here. <laughs> um, but that's just not been my coaching style. It has been um, kind of fill them with love and you will get the best out of them. You will get the most out of them. And I think that, We've brought some different things. We had a strength coach named Greg Maskinis that, when we won the national championship in 2015, he was a massive piece, and that was the that was the little piece that he brought that we felt our program was missing at the time. Um, that for both both Ann and I, and you know, Ann's been with me 12 years here, so having an associate head coach that thinks on the same rhythm and has similar ideas. Um, that was the piece that we knew we, we needed to bring into the program. And I think that Tim does a really good job of that for us. I think Ree Davis, our, our strength coach. But recognizing your style and how you affect players yourself, and then what are the other ways that you can coach players and who can infuse some of those pieces. So I didn't need a yeller and a screamer on my staff. That's not my style. But I did need somebody that can look at them in the eyes and give a little more of a kick than I give.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh probably a good pivot into um, talking about culture, right? And that's a, a buzz phrase that we all throw around as coaches um, from the highest level of professional, national teams, college, all the way down to the club game, even, even you know, my experience at the, at the rec level. Um, so I'm curious, how do you shape the culture of the Penn State women's program, or do you allow the players to shape the culture uh, of the program?
1: We are incredibly intentional in in the way that we shape culture um I many of these programs at this level have the position called the director of operations and um our director of operations I molded into a little bit of a different role so Carol Lowry is is our director of culture it basically perform there's a fancy title to it performance and development and all those things but she's basically our director of culture and and so what what I wanted is that there was a member of the staff So I coach defending, and coaches attack, Tim coaches goalkeeping, Kara coaches culture, and that there was a member of the staff that it was always front of mind. Because one of the things I think we all find is culture. We got to work on culture. We got to do something. We got to do something. Shoot, we have to work on these six things this week. Ah, Culture can go to next week. Oh, that can be pushed on to next week. And I needed a member of the staff. It's one thing to say that it's important to you. It's another thing to uh, make it enough of a priority that it's intentional and deliberate and that it, 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 ha- it follows a plan. And I think, I think Anne and I had a very clear vision of what we wanted the culture to look like, but when we arrived in 2007, it was a very different culture. It, in retrospect, it took us seven years to make that culture shift. I did a presentation two years ago where I actually had to go back and look and see when things culture shifted, and it was year seven. And I took over a team that had just been to two college cups and an elite eight. There was nothing wrong with the soccer. There was nothing wrong with the culture. It just wasn't our culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so, that was a really interesting. That was a that was a, a fascinating moment in my coaching to really okay. You've got your five year plan, your one year, your five year, but then at the ten year mark to look back and go when did when did things actually start to happen? So, the way we run it is um, we actually dedicate one day each week in the off season, um, and we have uh, we have a plan. We have actually tonight. Um, It's six o'clock tonight. And so they, um, Thursday night, tonight will be about our pillars, defining our three pillars within our own team. So our three pillars are attitude of a champion, blue collar and united family. And they are phrases, right? Anybody can have the phrases, but how do you make them living in, in a real life? And so what they'll do tonight is how they live within our team based on the last four months and what they look like for the 2019 team and how they can start to shape and create videos so that we can upskill the eight freshmen coming in before they walk in the door. And so how much can we help the new players live and understand the pillars before they even arrive? Because once August comes, there's too, there's so much soccer that that piece gets infused in different ways, but not nearly as ten- intentional as it is in the off season. So um, from January to April, we dedicate a day a week with the team we we um, dedicate a day a week to our leaders so every friday afternoon we sit down and we meet with the leaders and then through the summer the team takes over because we can't and that's when we so there's a accountability groups and there's a leader for each accountability group it's their job to help the new freshmen in their accountability group to understand how we work in the idea that once we arrive in August, we can get going. Mm-hmm. In season, we try to incorporate it in everything that we do, but it's not as intentional in terms of the programming. Mm-hmm. It's,
0: uh, I've, when I've in talking with other coaches, that um, a theme has come up that culture is not one event. Uh, culture is not a team building activity right. You know, at six o'clock tonight. It's a series of small events that over the course of time, you know, shape identity, shape um, who you are, you know, as a team. Um, I'm curious as to the player reaction, uh, to some of this and, um, knowing that the players you had 10 years ago, skill-wise may be similar, may be a little different, but mentally may be in a different space. I have a feeling this thing right here, technology, right? has changed a lot of this. Um, so I'm curious for you, how has a player, How's that been received amongst the, the team in terms of sort of this idea of culture as like a living, breathing you know, thing that we do?
1: Well, it, it obviously starts with recruiting. And when mm-hmm. we watch them play, it's something that we recruit for. Um, we have on more than one occasions after a cl- call with a club coach eliminated somebody from our list based on our kind of checklist of things that we ask, um, you know, team before self, down a goal, sitting on the bench, injury, you know, what's the reaction to all those different things? And we will recruit based on those answers. We've had a couple of coaches that have been, that have come in this spring to just shadow us. And their number one takeaway has been, their their number one uh, feedback to us was how impressed they were during the culture meetings of how locked in our group was. Mm. And we don't necessarily see it or feel it because it's, it's become the expectation now. Um, but that was something we just had a, a friend of ours in from Richmond. And uh, and Aaron, as he was walking, he goes, do you understand how incredibly impressive it is to see every member of your team engaging in the topics that you're talking about in those meetings? That there's not two kids that are too cool over here, or one kid that actually hasn't bought in over here. And I'm not saying everybody's all in with two feet, but I do think that there's enough positive peer pressure that our leaders have bought in, mm-hmm. and that the younger players are kind of looking around going huh, so i I guess this is kind of important, right, and that's the key right is it's is kind of the how you pass it on and how it becomes part of the next group mm-hmm. so i it's um again, culture is all it's funny, we just had a player that transferred in, and she said, "Well, we did a lot of the same stuff, it just didn't quite have the same effect, mm. and we've certainly have had to adjust the programming per team. It's not a copy-paste, mm-hmm. but that's where Kara comes in is because she can kind of read that. We had a we had a pretty average performance this past weekend against Princeton, and so before you walked in here, she came in and said, hey, is it okay if, within this pillar discussion, I think we need to hit on this Princeton result, sorry, Princeton performance, not the result, but the performance, and really bring it back in and how we tie it into the fall. And that's that's where having a coach in that position that understands the game can tie what's happening right now into the culture stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you've uh, you played in college cups. You won one. Uh, you're a national runner-up.
1: What was that experience like? College cups or national runner-up? All of it. All of the above. Uh, yeah. It was an education. It was a. Um, I very much believe the idea of you kind of have to be there first. I didn't. I didn't at the time, um, but if you look at our preparation and you look at our the way we conducted our business in 2012 versus 2015, we learned a lot, and and we implemented it in 15. And I and I don't think that we made mistakes in 12, other than to just be a little naive. And it didn't help that it was in San Diego, and we were coming from cold Pennsylvania. <laughs> and, you know, we, we landed, and all of a sudden it was just like palm trees. And um, But it, down to every last detail of 2015 of how we managed families, how we managed Friday night's win emotionally, and then how we then turn around. So very much 2012 we focused on... Win one game at a time. Just really focus on the next opponent. Mm-hmm. Fifteen, we went in and 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 we went in to win the weekend. And that's that was kind of the approach all season long because because soccer or women's soccer is Friday Sunday or Thursday Sunday. Hey, this is a two game this is a two game trip. And I think as coaches, we're always taught like just focus on the next game, focus on the next thing. Well, a huge win on Friday is negated by an average result on Sunday and an average performance. And so we actually try to mentally prepare them for the the whole weekend and so we went into 2015 with that approach and I thought it served us once we got the the win on Friday night it was just a check the box and now let's finish off the weekend versus you know again it was the perfect storm in 2012 it was overtime against Florida State our goalkeeper had transferred in from Florida State we won it in dramatic fashion in the rain and dog pile and well then you got to turn around and win the game on Sunday and you know emotionally and physically just exhausted and then you got Carolina running mm-hmm. 30 people in off the bench Crystal Dunn's coming in at the 75th minute <laughs> like you know you're just looking at your team with two thumbs up and you know chin up and let's go mm-hmm. um, but a lot of lessons learned and mostly it was off the field stuff of how to deal with their bodies and emotions and things that you would find on paper and it would all make sense but when it's put on top of the Thursday night limo ride to the college cup dinner and all those things it's just telling them what to expect and then managing all their emotions. Mm
0: -hmm. So I in prepping for today um, there's a word that I like that you've used in other interviews of uh, standard or standards and I'm wondering if those two experiences I would venture to say they probably impacted um, standards but to say that standards were in place you know throughout your coaching career. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering about that word and sort of what, maybe why that word and sort of what does that mean to you, uh, you know, as the leader of this program?
1: I think that that word has evolved tremendously throughout my time here. Um, and I think that the, the evolution of the word standard within Penn State women's soccer stemmed from the fact that in my early years, teams we respected We performed. And then because the program had been so successful, specifically in the Big Ten, to be honest, they've been able to kind of walk through some opponents um, in the past that they would walk into certain games and not perform and still win games. And so it was a little bit the product of where they stood with their peer group. Um, And so they were able to kind of walk over some opponents. Well, when we walked in, the league was getting better and better. And, and, you know, and you didn't perform and you were losing those games. And so Mm -hmm. really helping to teach the players that about the journey and the process and about the standard rather than the result. Because it was all when I first arrived, it was pretty results driven by me. You know, it was I've got a pretty successful program here that I've taken over. I'm going to try not to screw this up. And so I think it was a little bit too results-driven. Again, I think back to those players we had during that time, and they were a wonderful collection of young women and hardworking players. And a lot of it was I had to bring myself up to speed with Going to the Elite Eight is is not good enough at this level. It's you know it's a good season, but that the expectations are greater, that we expect to go to a college cup and win a national championship, and we've got to conduct ourselves in, the, in that way in everything that we do. And it helps that down the hallway, we've got Cale Sanderson and Penn State Wrestling and Rush Rose and Penn State Volleyball they are surrounded by people with that mentality that there's not a day off Mm -hmm. that uh, they take care of their bodies in a certain way that they act a certain way socially and that's been a huge help with bringing our athletes you know who they surround themselves with who they hitch their wagon to but i think a big part of standards you look at you look at our results after about three four years that i was here and we were still losing or tying games that had we performed we should have had a much better result and so then it became much more about training standard playing standard we actually de-emphasized results a little bit for a period of time and then kind of brought it all together
0: that's interesting to me Um, I've heard another uh, coach actually my mentor has said the same thing that um, he has said to me that when he initially took over a program that he focused too much on the word winning in that what he realized is that he needed to focus on the ingredients in the, impre- in the process. And consequently, when he's sort of made that pivot, they've had better success because of it. So, um, you know, uh, in, like I said, in prepping, prepping for today, um, you know, anyone does a, a quick Google search of your name, they can see your win-loss record. That's one metric we as coaches and administrators and athletic directors and, you know, fans of the game sort of use to define success. What success mean for you, uh, as a coach and you know, as the the person leading the program?
1: Well, there's there's a lot of different ingredients. Certainly, when loss record is a is a big part of it. Um, if philosophically, when we raised the trophy in 2015, there was a a really important moment when I looked out to the to the the eyes and the expressions of the 26 players on that team that the player that had played the least amount of minutes had as much ownership. And that is a really hard thing to create with a 26-man roster when all of these players were big stars in their home environment. But if you focus on development and you focus on each individual player's journey, there is enough satisfaction and buy-in that they've A, grown themselves and B, pushed the person next to them. that when we uh, Teddy Chase knows that we use her as an example. Teddy Chase was a senior on that team. She played less minutes than most of the players on that roster when she held up that trophy, she knew she was a massive part of that national championship. That was a uh, that was a defining moment for me in terms of what success should look like. I, I want to be holding up that trophy, but I want to make sure that Ted, the Teddy Chase is holding up that trophy with me with as much pride and understanding that without teddy chase we're not holding up that trophy and that the role of each player if you can help to define the role of each player in terms of making the person next to them better that they if they play that role to the best of their ability that they really can add that extra bit that you need to be successful and that's That With each passing year, that definition has grown more and more, and the commitment to that piece has grown more and more in terms of creating the development plans for those players that in this particular year they may not factor in against certain teams, Mm -hmm. but can they continue to grow? So even with their discontent of not playing, they have some satisfaction of improvement and purpose And vision of where they're going so they can continue to see forward and they're not looking at it going head down only looking down and and disgruntled with every aspect of what's going on. Mm
0: -hmm. I've often thought of those um, you know maybe the the last person on the roster of they can be the the culture creator or they could be the culture killer and that um, I really like what you said there that that moment of like oh my god ultimate satisfaction to see that person raise the trophy Right, that says something about the program, and that, um, you know, everybody understanding sort of their place within it, but feeling comfortable that they have ownership of the, the end product, you know, and the, the end result. Um, so uh, we're going to do a 180-degree turn yep. here. We'll call it a correct turn. Uh, I, I like what you said earlier, Erica, about, um, you know, your 20s and 30s were um, soccer-heavy, and the fact that you know, really putting in the work, uh, to be able to get to this level of coaching, but also realizing that, um, while soccer is a massive piece of your life, it's not the only thing in your life. It's not the only thing that defines you as a, as a person. So I'm curious, how do you take care of yourself outside of soccer and sort of, you'd mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, work-life balance and kind of the juggling act of now being a parent and a mom that, um, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but it's hard as hell. Um, and my wife and I talk about that all the time that um, you know, we jokingly call ourselves the Hot Mess Express because uh, that's what I feel like. Um, you know, I feel like we're in the circus and, uh, you know, one person's going here, we got one on the ground having a meltdown, we got a seven month old that, you know, needs to eat and take a nap. Um, it's a lot some days, but it's also really fun and we're probably crazy for saying that, but, uh, I'm curious for you, how do you take care of yourself and kind of manage everything?
1: Uh, you know, certainly, <laughs> certainly one day at a time. Um, you know, I, it, my husband Jason and I met when I was 38 and I look back you know, I think that there was a time in my life before I met Jason where I started to realize that my work-life balance was off. I was so proud of the work that I had done professionally, but also knew that that wasn't the vision I had for my life ultimately. And so I was very fortunate that God brought Jason into my life and and that uh, our 10-month and our two two-and-a-half-year-old then came in my 40s, um, but... I think a huge part of it again it's the people that you surround yourself with it's having the right partner that understands exactly what they're getting into and can support that piece Uh, I have found a partner in Jason that um, loves nothing more than to bring our girls to our games and to be to have the team over and I, I just can't imagine it being successful any other way I'm sure that there is a way but he he's the one that makes this work he's the one that that Pulls this all together for us, and um, I'm very fortunate from that standpoint. Honestly, I, I have no idea how I would do it without a support a supportive partner. And um, as it is, to your point, um, you know, just just even pulling the full day together sometimes is a is a work of I I don't know how it even comes together some days, but you hit the couch at nine or hit the bed at nine and you're done and you get up and you, and you do the next day and it's wonderfully rewarding and it's way more rewarding now than it ever was when the winds were coming without it. Um, and that's, I guess that's the probably the biggest learning lesson for me is maybe it's a little bit less time in the office, but the value it brings to my coaching and it brings to my my Penn State women's soccer family to see our players interacting with my girls. To see my uh, there's not there's nothing better in the world and to and to after a match win or lose bring Addie into the circle see the smile on our players faces and feel that family it's the environment that I've always wanted here and I think that's only enriched that environment I know I used to stand in that circle arm in arm with my team before I had a family and it felt very fulfilling and I had a very full heart um, but now it's something completely different and now we've got uh, now bringing that piece in um, it's never been better
0: I've uh often told folks that coaching my son has probably been one of the most rewarding things of my life and um i have no idea where his soccer career is <laughs> going to go um you know and quite honestly I want him to figure that out you know i, I want to be a part of it but i don't want to uh dictate to him where it does or doesn't go i want him to sort of figure that out but there's nothing that brings me greater satisfaction or a smile on my face just to see him you know, last night we had training and to see him connecting concepts and, um, really starting to have that soccer IQ that I really value in players. And I hope that, you know, as your daughters get older and, you know, and the same for my daughters, that they get older, that, um, it, it's just a really cool thing. Uh, I mean, there's no other way I can describe yeah. it. And, um, and that's different than when I was, when I first started coaching him, you know, and, Part of that comes through self-reflection part of that comes through he always looks at me as as being dad first um coach second and so this crazy balancing act of doing both you know and i think it's actually one of the hardest things in the world is to coach your own kid um and i've talked a little bit about this before but so i won't go into, into great detail um where do you see all this going uh for you i mean you're still young you know in in terms of age um you have Significant amount of experience and have done a wide variety of things, but uh, where where do you see this going for you?
1: Um. Well, I've you know I've dabbled at some different levels. I've I've worked with the women. I've um, I've not worked in our pro league, um, but as I, I again I now that I have the family and I have the more balance in my life, I'm so thankful that I worked as hard as I did for those. 15 18 years to kind of get to this point um, because I I did the 180 days in hotels a year traveling with the women and and I did the the full pros and now I am a hundred percent convinced that I am a college coach I, I love the 18 to 22 year old I love the brain I love the emotions I love the growth um, and I I mean Penn State's my home. My family, my parents live on the same street as I do. My parents are Penn State grads. They run our booster club. You can't have a better indicator of somebody is staying put until the administration decides <laughs> otherwise. Uh, but I, I, I've done, i I've done those things. And I'm not only am I satisfied, but I also have a Russ Rose down the hallway who's been doing it for 40 years and is still having success. And when I speak to him, He's still having new challenges. That's the beauty of coaching. Is it something new every year? I There's no boredom. There's no, in fact, it's the opposite. It's like I need less excitement sometimes. Like give me something mundane every once in a while because it's, I love that about coaching. Every day is so different. You have no idea what's going to be thrown at you. One of the things I remember when I was assistant coach is I always wondered, I feel like I'm running this program. What is my head coach doing? I I, I specifically, I was like 22, and I remember laughing. I laugh now because I remember now how I, I, I'm doing all this stuff. What and what they're doing is they're putting out fires, right? The head coach is just constantly reacting to exactly what you know they have their list of things to do, but you can work on that list because we're constantly putting out fires, and when you see an 18 to 22 year old hit their tipping point it is one of the most gratifying moments whether that's a tipping point in a concept whether it's a tipping point in a leadership or confidence or that aha moment i i I work really hard to to educate our players kind of on that concept because they beat themselves i can't get this I, i can't i don't understand i don't and then you see it click and whether it's a moment or just a match or a month Going back with them and going, do you remember when when this was the case and getting them to really laugh about how frustrated or how you know how bad they were in that moment of can you see where you are now and you don't know what you don't know, right? That's always the con the conversation we have about the freshmen. They don't know what they don't know, and you can't give them to them. They just have to live through it themselves. And so, how can you help them to manage that time? Oh, it's the it's just the best. It's the best age to work with because they are vulnerable and their confidence is um you know they've got a confidence to them but a total vulnerability to them and you've got some upperclassmen that you're trying to help them the idea of helping 21 year old women to have difficult conversations the lost art of a difficult conversation i can't tell you how many times in my early years of coaching that said you just need to talk to her they don't even know what that means they have no idea to help to help educate them in the art of a difficult conversation. Heck, how many adults don't know how to have a difficult conversation? I'm, I'm one of them half the time, you know, but to really take those life skills and to really help instill them where they're just about to really need them in life, there's there's no better age group in my, my mind.
0: So in terms of, uh, I don't know, the next generation of coaches or... So folks on your staff or, um, you know, coaches that may come to you and say, you know, hey, Erica, what advice would you offer them um, if they're, I guess it doesn't really matter where they are in their coaching journey, but if they have aspirations of moving up and that's all going to, you know, obviously that's relative to the person in terms of what they define as, hey, I would love to get to X level. um, And that could be college, that could be club, that could be someone wants to get in the professional game, whatever. Um, What would you tell them?
1: Well, one of the things that I had um, hit on earlier was my time with Pia and the full women's team. And I remember um, coming home from a trip with the U19, we, we took in 2004, Mark and I took the um, U19 team to Thailand for a World Cup. And we had Megan Rapino and Becky Sauerbrunn and Rachel Bueller and Ashlyn Harris, and just an unbelievable collection of players. And we, and we ended up getting third place in that event. And then I flew home from Thailand, and the next day I got a call from Eber Heinrichs asking me if I would take the U-17 job. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. you know. And just believing in yourself from that standpoint. And we talked about being comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but then from there, I got pulled into PS staff with the full team, and I remember being really, really overwhelmed in that moment. And somebody gave me the bit advice of, you've been selected to be here. Keep your mouth shut, ask a lot of questions, and open your ears. And I think that, especially as coaches, because we're supposed to have this confidence to us that everybody can see and feel, keep your mouth shut and, and listen. You know, when, when you're surrounded by, it will come out how much you know. I think it's a, it's a human quality that we all want to make sure everybody knows how much we know and how knowledgeable and confident and all those things. And one of the things I really tried to do when I was around Pia was just just listen. Just And when asked, sure I tried to make it seem like I knew what I was talking about But I sat and I would leave Every meeting and I'd go back and I'd take my Notes, what did I take from it um, And uh, and Just qu- ask question after question After question, I was I guess confident enough To ask questions, which I do think that there takes a certain amount of confidence To do it, you know, and so um, As you kind of As you grow through it if you can surround yourself with people that are better than you, I think that's easy advice, right? But then, when you are around those people, they don't—they don't need to know how much you know, right? You're—you're you're around them so that you can grow,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and dissect it, and and get gain as much from those people as you possibly can. Um, again, that was an area. Pia was so so gifted in that area in terms of. She um, didn't understand a lot of the American things, as so she says. So she said we still make fun of her for that because she tried to play it off that she didn't. uh, We think that she understood everything that was going on. Um, But she would just ask questions and ask questions, and why are we doing it? And eventually, again, when somebody asks you a question, it makes you feel good. They want your knowledge. And so you're building up the people around you while gaining information. That's a win-win for For everybody to a certain point I'm sure asking questions can get annoying to some people but um, but that's been that's been the best formula for me
0: Well, that really resonates with me because I think for coaches there's definitely a hunger in a lot of us right so having that hunger and that curiosity um, and I feel you know I (laughs) I joke with my wife about um, the number of text or emails that I send to my mentor over the course of a week that um, You know, sometimes I have to, before I hit send on that message going, okay, I've already hit him up maybe two or three times this week, like, ease up on this a little bit there, cowboy. You know, like, whoa. Um, But my dad said something to me, Erica, growing up that I think really speaks to your point that, you know, two ears and one mouth, right? And that um, he always would tell me and my brothers of, you know, if you're in a situation, observe, pay attention, listen, and then when it's your time, find a way to interject yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. in that. Because if you come in as sort of the, uh, you know, the quote-unquote expert in the room, that's going to go one of two ways. Um, people are either going to say, yeah, absolutely, you know, or they're going to say, no, 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 no." sit down and, you know, find your place sort of in the pecking order. And it's always been a really helpful, I think, life skill that he taught me at a very young age. So I'm, I'm grateful, and, and God rest his soul, he's not here anymore. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I just think that having those people around you, and... and I would even maybe add one thing from my experience of the diversity of people and the diversity of their thought, yeah. right? That we could look at a game and, you know, you could break down a four-four-two this way, but I might break it down this way. Um, or, you know, here's how I wanna organize my back line, but you might say, well, maybe I, maybe, have you ever thought about this? And that, um, you know, the, the really cool thing about sport and soccer in particular, is that we could look at the same picture, but yet come to different conclusions about it, right? And, you know, and, I, and I think for me that's the beauty of the game. Yeah. Um, yes, playing a pretty style of soccer, an attractive style of soccer is fun to watch, but for me that's sort of like the, the secret sauce of the game, you know? So, um, a, a question that I end every podcast with, and this is, uh, this is a bit of a loaded question, so I'll, I'll preface it by saying this. Uh, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong in our country when it comes to soccer? Wow. You can go in any direction.
1: Yeah. What are we doing right is I think that there are a lot of organizations that are starting to understand. I, I, I feel as though we need to flip the model on its head a little bit in terms of mom and dad as the coaches at eight, nine, ten versus actually skilled coaches in that time period of, um, you know, we, we've often dedicated our more skilled coaches to our older age group when the ideas have already kind of been put into these players and understanding how old your son that you were talking about, he's eight, he's eight, there yeah. you go. Right. And to, and to get these skilled coaches into some of those age groups versus mom and dad that if they haven't played the game um i think that that's a model that we need to take a real hard close and i do know that there's a lot of organizations that are starting to look at it that way of let's let's impact let's get these players to start to understand the game let's de-emphasize results let's emphasize fun and uh and training you know and but a lot of small sided stuff as well but can you help them through the game model to to teach them a game and to help them read the game um you know, there, there's if you ask a coach about soccer in our country, the very, one of the first three things that they'll say is, we don't watch the game enough, right? But that is reality. We don't watch it enough. And until the next generation of parents come about that played the game, <coughs> that the game is on the TV on a Saturday, that's not going to change. It's I, I just don't see or feel that changing. I come from a generation, I've already talked about this, where on Saturday I watch the Eagles. You know, and, and I certainly I watched some soccer, but I didn't come, I didn't grow up in a household. It,
0: so I, I appreciate that because it was hard as hell to find soccer on TV in the generation that we grew up. Yep. Um, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I laugh now when my son comes home from school and he asks me if Champions League's on today. Um, I love it. Yep. But I, I also you know, sort of this, uh, you know, the, the, the snow is up to the telephone poles and we used to walk uh, uphill both ways to (laughs) school kind of guy here. Uh, but I say that because I'm like, dude, you have no good, how you have no idea how good you actually have it. Right. You can stream it on uh, an iPod touch, a phone. You can, you can watch (laughs) it on a laptop. I mean, you have no, you can watch any league in the world virtually. Right. Um, and I agree with you. I, I, I don't think we watch the game enough. I don't. I know my U10 players don't watch the game sure. enough. You know, and they can sure they can rattle off Messi and Ronaldo and you know some of the bigger names maybe in the the Premier League or something like that. But after that, I mean, the knowledge stops there. Yeah. You know, and I think for me, uh, and I'll obviously I'll uh, deflect the ball or uh, bounce the ball back to you. That I think that um, getting out of the idea that soccer stops when you leave training. Soccer is a culture, soccer is an identity. Soccer is part of who you are to a certain extent, right? So it's kicking the ball around, it's watching it on TV, it's having access to, you know, we try to have soccer balls in virtually every room of our house that, you know, we've broken some stuff because of it, but the fact that our kids get used to seeing a soccer ball around, right? Um, You know, I have a net in our backyard that is just permanently set up and we just go out and play. Um, I don't know if every kid that I've coached has that. Not to say that's right or wrong, but part of the culture aspect and sort of really getting the 100% buy-in is like living it, right? We can't just talk about it in a training session and then say, okay, I'll see you next Monday, you know, good luck until then and do nothing between today and, you know, next Monday, so.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know, right now, even with, we've got this incoming class of ours is extremely talented and I'll say to them, well, what's what's your development plan in terms of, when and how often and where and all those things. And, and um, every one of them involves team training and a trainer. Like, no, no, no. When are you going out in the backyard with a ball? Yeah. With a ball and your dog. With yeah. a ball and an enemy. With a ball and a friend. I don't care who it is. Right. but But that is, that is just completely gone. You know, and I think that that's... I think that has to get kind of the idea of street games. You know, street ball. That's got to be part. We have a... We have a lot of coaches in our country that want the game to be the teacher, and I don't think the game could be the teacher until they watch the game. And so that that philosophy to me, I love it in theory, but it's got to go hand in hand. The game is the teacher in other countries because they're learning it from, mm-hmm. from the best in their country or the best in the world on TV, and, and that's not the case right now. So um, comfort level on the ball with getting away from the personal trainers and the – We've got to drive two hours to this team. Just get on the ball and watch the game, and get a thousand touches, you know, every two days, and uh, and we'll be way more successful.
0: Mm-hmm. If uh, if folks want to connect with you and the the Penn State women's soccer program, how can they do that?
1: Everything of mine is public online on the Penn State website. Go PSU Sports, uh, women's soccer, and my email address is on there, and I'd be happy to take any questions.
0: Cool. America, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Uh, this was great. So. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you have heard me talk about duketigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. So I'm a Duke Tig brand FC member, brand ambassador and received a gift from them recently that is a complete game changer they've actually developed a waterproof notebook that will change your life had the opportunity to actually use this product last weekend and truly unbelievable in the execution in the um just the delivery of the product i can't say enough good things about it If you go to duketigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, and upon checkout, use my promo code BROADWATER19, I can save you 10% on your next order at checkout. duketigbrand.com, promo code BROADWATER19. A big shout out to Erica Dombach of Penn State University and the women's soccer program there for coming on the latest episode of the on the touchline podcast. And also a shout out to Ryan Snyder, the sports information person for women's soccer, Penn state for helping coordinate uh, this interview and allowing for me to come to campus and sit down with coach in person, Ryan, thank you so much and would love to do it again sometime in the future. You probably saw a recent graphic that I put out that this podcast has gone over 10,000 listens recently. I can't thank you enough as the host of this show or one of the hosts of this show for your support for what we're trying to do here with the On the Touchline podcast. I mention this every episode, but I genuinely mean it when I say it. You can support this show in a number of different ways. Number one, share the show out on social media. If there's something that you'd like if there is a quote that a guest has or an approach that a guest has, make sure you share it out on social media. And when you do that, be sure to tag me. Uh, I'm active on Twitter and Instagram. At Soccer JB is my handle. And of course, if you'd love to follow along, uh, tweet very often and would love to engage with you that way. The second way is by word of mouth. Believe it or not, In 2019, word of mouth, and your influence you can have on fellow coaches, players, and people in the game still matters. So I was new to the podcast world uh, not that long ago, and it was because of other podcasts that I listened to, I would tell my friends about them. I want you to do the same thing about the On the Touchline podcast and help us keep growing that way. So folks can subscribe to the show on their favorite podcasting platform. We're available on 11 different podcasting platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, you name it. Uh, We are available on all those platforms and more. And last but not least, if you listen to the show, it would mean the absolute world to me. So if you've never done this before, it's super easy to do. It'll take you all of probably less than 2 minutes to do this. Go to Apple Podcast, find the show, leave a 5-star rating and a brief review. That helps more and more people in the soccer community find out about this podcast. It helps us keep growing and expanding our message. And like I said, if there's something about the show that you like, put it in the rating in the review and help people find out about this show. All right. You can expect a brand new episode coming your way next Wednesday. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. I'll catch you guys next time. This has been the latest episode of the On The Touchline podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.